Today's reading is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 to 19. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made a good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Among those who are rich in this present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Vixie. If you can have your Bibles open to 1 Timothy 6, that would be great. And if you're a visitor with us, actually, I just want you to know that we talk about money once a year, and you happen to come and visit us um, on that Sunday. It's a Stewardship Sunday, which is why um, it's, uh, this sheet is uh, in there, and Peter will come and um, explain uh, to us a little bit what this is. Um, but I think I don't mind preaching about money, um, mostly because I think Hong Kong is filled with idolatry of money. And so we need to hear about what God is, who God is, and how God frees us uh, from that idolatry. So let's pray together that God will do that this morning. Lord, we give you great praise and thanks that you are God who has provided abundantly for us. And Lord, we pray that you'll now speak um, to us through these words that these words will become your words spoken to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This is one of the 
sort of travel party games um, that people play. I'm sure you've, pl- you've, uh, you've played would you rather games at some point in your life. Um, things like, so people ask you things like this, right? So would you rather be dumb and beautiful or smart and really ugly? I'm not sure what I would. Um, would you? Oh no, definitely smart and uh, smart and really ugly. Um, would you rather have loved uh, and have your heart be broken, or not have loved at all? Which one would you choose? Well, I think these are actually pretty difficult. Um, but I hope this next one is not difficult. Would you rather be rich for 80 years or for eternity? But actually, in order to answer that question easily, we actually have to be sure of certain things. Uh, That Jesus lived, that he really was the Son of God, that he died and that he rose again, that he will come back uh, to rule this whole world, to recreate this whole world. Actually, we need to be sure of that. We need to be sure of the future that Jesus brings. We need to be certain that there is eternity in order to answer that question. And the hope of eternity is actually what underlies the reading that we just read. It's everywhere in our passage. It's there in verse 7. We brought nothing into the world and we could take nothing out of it. He's assuming that we will go to the next world. Verse 12, take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Eternal life is coming. Verse 14, to keep this command without spot or blameless until blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus will come back. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world. Well, there is a future world. Verse 19, in this way, will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. There is a coming age. What do you think will happen when you die? Do you believe in what we profess weekly? We just said it in the Nicene Creed, that Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the the dead, and his kingdom will have no end, that we will rise again with him, and we will live there with him. And that future is so important, because if we have it, then actually we can have something in this present world that many people search for but cannot have, contentment. We can have contentment today. Contentment. Hope's present reward. I don't know if you saw the news, but Li Ka-shing last week sold the center tower. This is probably the richest real estate deal that ever went on. $40.2 billion. That's U.S. $5.15 billion. He's 89 years old. It immediately made me think, why does he need the money? Why is he thinking about money? Sure, there are good reasons to sell this right now, but uh, he's 89. Shouldn't he be worried about something else? But here's a man who has no hope for the future. No eternal life, no coming of age, no life that is truly life. So he has to think about this world. He has to think about making most of the last few years that he has left in this world because... He can't look forward to the coming age. But if we set our eyes on the coming world, we can have contentment, Paul says in verse 6. Because with the hope of the future, it doesn't take much actually to be content now. Look at what Paul says in verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, 
will be content with that. Uh, this isn't dehumanizing, abject poverty we're talking about. Um, we need things to eat and things to wear, a roof over our head, right? Without those, actually, you really can't, it's really hard to be content. Our basic needs need to be met. But he is saying that when these basic needs are met, we can be content with that, even with all the things that surround us now. How could that possibly be? With all the luxuries that we see in Hong Kong, all the luxury cars, and how about the places that you, that you could go to, um, you could visit, a bigger house, gadgets, all the stuff of Hong Kong. How could we be content with just basic needs? Well, when we set our eyes on the future hope, our perspective changes. First, Paul says that we realize that this life is a journey between two nakedness, right? He says, we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. It's in Job's words, um, naked you came and naked you leave. Everything in between is, in a way, a bonus, right? You were born naked, but is any of us still naked? Is any of us still unclothed? No. God has provided us with what we need. We have clothes, we have food, more than enough. We have roof over our heads. God has already richly provided for us. But more than that, that perspective of the eternal life changes how we experience today. This Thursday, I learned a new word, uh, FOMO, fear of missing out. This world is plagued with it. I think Hong Kong is plagued with it. People don't commit to things because, well, they think, they think well, if I commit to this, maybe something better will come out later on. So people don't commit. Everyone's constantly looking for something better. But that's not the Christian perspective. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, preached the sermon when he was 18, which had three simple points. It's called Christian happiness. Three reasons why Christians can be happy today. He says, Your bad things will turn out to be good, and your good things will never be taken away from you, and the best things are yet to come. Friends, the coming of the age is near. Jesus is coming And if we sacrifice for Christ now, if we give up things right now for the coming kingdom, it will turn out to be good. Our sacrifices, our self-giving will turn out to be glorious. Our bad things will turn out to be good, even glorious if we are doing it for Christ. And not only that, the good things that you experience now, the good things that you see around you now that you don't experience, well, they will continue. They will not be taken away. When Jesus comes back, you will be able to experience all of that for the rest of eternity. The best of nature, best of culture, best of technology, best of the world has to offer will be there. It will be there when Jesus comes back. And not only that, the best things are yet to come. You don't even have to experience everything now because the things that you cannot even imagine the goodness uh, that you cannot even comprehend will come. The best is yet to come. You see how the hope of the future takes away the fear of missing out. We can be content now because we will have the future that is coming. 
as, Jesus, as Paul says in verse 19, we will have the life that is truly life. Is your hope in the future or in the present? That's the difference between contentment and restlessness. Where is your hope? But even as we set our eyes on that future hope, I know that we struggle. So Paul addresses two groups of people here, those who want to get rich in verse 9 and on, and those who are rich in verses 17 and on. Take a look at verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many, uh, many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is root of all kinds of evil. It's not the money itself that's evil, yeah? And we know that money, we need money. We, money can uh, do good. But it's the love of money, over-desiring of money. It's greed, that is bad. That's the problem. And that kind of over-desiring of money leads to, as Paul says, ruin and destruction. And you know how that is. I've done it myself. I'm sure you've done it yourself as well. We start lying. We start cheating. We start exploiting people. If not other people, we might start overworking now. We start gossiping, gambling, investing in dodgy schemes, backstabbing for money. And all this, Paul says, is deadly. It leads to ruin and destruction. And not only that, I don't know if you heard it, but he says it's a trap. And it's a very effective trap that devil puts for us. Because oftentimes, we don't see this sin coming our way. If you've read uh, Tim Keller's Counterfeit God, there's a copy that you can buy at the back. It's a great book, but he outlines why this is such an effective trap. Because he says, all the other sins, you know when you're committing them. When you're committing adultery, you know you're committing adultery. If you're lying, you know that you're lying. It doesn't sneak up on you. But greed, it sneaks up on us. Right? Greed is different because it's hard to see. How much love of money do you need to have in order for that to be greed? Right? Where's the line? Well, it's hard to see the line. And greed can even look respectable because it can look like uh, hard work. It can look like thriftiness. It can even look like I want to provide for others. So we have to constantly examine our hearts. We have to re-examine it again and again to, the see, to see the condition of our hearts, to see if we're walking into that trap that leads to ruin and destruction. It creeps up on us. And when Paul says in verse 10 that people have wandered away from the faith because of greed, he isn't describing an overnight process. He's picturing people taking small steps, one step at a time, away from the faith. You know, doing these things, missing church, not coming to a fellowship with others, not reading the Bible, start participating things that, in things that they shouldn't participate, um, not coming to church at all. Um, then they come to a point where, where, where they, when they tell themselves, I don't know, I don't know if I've ever believed in Christ at all. Friends, love of money is root of all kinds of evil. How do we fight this? It's in there in verses 11 and 12. You, men and women of God, pursue righteousness, 
godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Set your eyes on the eternity that is coming and fight the good fight, he says. And fighting is hard. He's picturing a soldier, right? It's a language of war because it's a struggle. But we must turn away from love of money and pursue godly virtues, set our eyes on the eternity to which we're called. We need to struggle to grasp hold of it, make it our own. So after addressing this group of people, and then Paul addresses another group in verses 17 and on. He says, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant, nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Richness is relative, but in every culture, every place, there is somebody who is relatively wealthy um, than everybody else. But one of the things that I see uh, that strikes me from this passage is how urgent Paul's um, Paul's writing is. He he doesn't say gently suggest to the rich not to be arrogant, right? He he does he takes away all those um, uh, nice words. He says command them not to be arrogant. Love of money is so strong and tempting that we actually need to fight it with God's command, God's firm command against it. And first, we're commanded not to be arrogant. And worldly richness, it sometimes goes to our heads. We think, well, I am richer than other people because of who I am, because I'm better than other people. And not only that, um, it's easy for the rich not to take advice and criticism from others, right? Because, well, why should I take criticism from you, who seem to be far worse off than me, who doesn't seem to know how to live life? And it's easy for the rich also to be isolated from criticisms, right? Because people don't like offending the rich. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, but also to put their hope, um, it, uh, hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Verse 17. Tragically, when we put our hope on worldly wealth, we are gambling. We're gambling with things that are uncertain. And you know how wealth is uncertain in this world. Stock markets go up and down. I mean, the property market uh, could burst anytime soon in Hong Kong. Political situations can change in a moment. We know this already. But often, our response is wrong. Often, we, know, we all know that wealth is uncertain. So we say to ourselves, so we need more of it. I need a little bit more money. So we can be a little bit more certain of the future. It's understandable because we need security. Right? But look at where Paul says our security can and should come from. It's there at the second half of verse 17. But put your hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. We can put our hope on God who richly provides us with everything that we need. We can bank on his promises. We can bank on God who holds our present and the future. And having put our hope on God... We're now then commanded, once again, in verses 18 and 19, to be good, to be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. Once again, he's commanding here, but he's not commanding the rich to be poor. 
He's not saying give up everything and give away everything. Uh, Abraham, Job, Joseph, Arimathea, many women who supported Jesus' ministry during his lifetime were wealthy and they stayed wealthy. But they are commanded to their richness to add another kind of richness. To be rich in good deeds. To be generous and willing to share. The command is to do good by sharing what they have. To be generous to those who are in need. For they will then be laying a firm foundation for the coming age. You see, the purpose of having money, earning money, becomes different. Why do you earn money? Do you earn so you can keep it? Or do you earn so you can give it away? You can share with others. But doing all of this is really hard. Watching our greed is hard. It's something that I constantly struggle with uh, myself as well. Um, I constantly think to myself, am I giving enough of it away? Am I greedy in my heart? But there are a few practical things I think we can take away from this text. The first is the principle of simpler living. Simpler lifestyle. Verse 8. But if we have food and clothing, we can be content with that, Paul said. We should ask ourselves, am I content with simple living? Am I content with food and clothing or do I want all those things around me? Do I want a lifestyle that people are telling me that I should live? I'm entitled to. In 1980, Lausanne Congress um, produced a document called Evangelical Commitment to Simple Lifestyle. Let me quote it at length here. We resolve to renounce waste and oppose extravagance in personal living, clothing and housing, travel and church buildings. We also accept the distinction between necessities and luxuries, creative hobbies and empty status symbols, modesty and vanity, occasional celebrations and normal routine between the service of God and slavery to fashion. Where to draw the line requires conscientious thought and decision by us together with members of our family. We ought to renounce waste, oppose extravagance, distinguish needs from luxuries, hobbies from status symbols, occasionals um, to, from routine. Luxury shouldn't be routine part of our lives. We need to make conscientious decisions to live simpler lives. But of course, that in and of itself shouldn't be the end, right? You know people who don't spend anything on themselves. They they seem to be content with food and clothing, but they don't give anything away. Their bank account goes bigger and bigger, grows bigger and bigger. That's not Christian thriftiness. That's just stinginess. If we embrace simpler living, it's so that we could give away, so that we could be generous with others around us. Second takeaway from this is the principle of disciplined generosity. Uh, Remember what Paul said about godliness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you're called. The picture is, once again, a soldier going to war and training. Uh, And how does a soldier train? Well, it's back in chapter 4, verse 7 to 8. He says there, Train yourself to be godly, 
For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, promising, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. In order for us to be generous, we need to train ourselves. We need to train ourselves to be godly. When I ran the marathon, by the way, I ran the marathon, I mean, just a couple of times, I just, this is a life, it's given me lifetime sermon illustrations, which is great. We've run the marathon. Um, When I ran the marathon, I subscribed to a training plan, which actually told me how many miles to run for each day for the next six months. And I didn't always follow it, but without doing some of it, I just couldn't get into shape, right? I couldn't run it. Without a plan, I couldn't run it. Godliness, including generosity, I think is like that for most of us. We need to train ourselves to be generous because while some, ha- some of us have the gift of generosity, they seem to have this gift. It doesn't come to most of us naturally. So we need a plan. We need to discipline ourselves to give away what we have. Every year, Mary and I sit down together and we, have a, we make a spreadsheet, or, or Mary makes a, a spreadsheet, of how much money we are likely to have um, this coming year. And then we go through what we need, how much to save for the future and so on. And most of the times, actually, we need less than what we think we needed. And then we plan our giving. We plan to be generous to the church, to our mission partners, to our parents, to those in need around us. We plan to do this because without that plan, actually, my tendency is not to be generous. My tendency is not to give anything. Train yourselves to be godly. As we end, I wonder if you thought about why verse 13 is there in between these two commands to, do, to the two groups. Paul mentions God who gives everything and also Christ who testified before Pontius Pilate, he says in verse 13. It's right at the heart of the passage, isn't it? And it's a reminder. God has given us everything, everything that we need right now. Even more, he gave us his son. Christ stood before Pontius Pilate and made the good confession that took him to his execution. He himself gave us everything so that we could have the future. So let's set our hope on that future that Christ has won for us, especially in Hong Kong where money is such an idol. And so let's train, let's fight this idol. Let's train ourselves to be godly. Let's pray. Lord, we once again thank you for the hope that you've given us. We thank you that as we look around this world, we see you at work here. But we thank you that there is a better world that is coming. A world where you will rule for eternity. A world where, where we will never miss out. A exp- world in which we will experience all the good things that you have designed for us to experience and enjoy for the rest of eternity. Lord, would you free us from the idol of money that has so gripped our hearts? Would you free us to live for you, for the hope that you have given us, that we might show the people around us once again 
that they too could have hope for the future, that they could know the freedom that comes in knowing you. We thank you that we're not alone in doing this. We thank you that you are with us. We thank you for the church. Help us to spur one another on toward the good hope that you've called us. In Jesus' name, amen.